0: pray. Father in heaven, this doesn't get old to me. I still can't believe that I I get to do this. Thank you for the the privilege of, of study this week. Thank you for the sacred moment now to open the scriptures to the people you've given me to love. And I pray, oh Father, that you would especially now in a unique way, grant the gift of your Holy Spirit that we would know the work of the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God in great power over these moments. Help me to be faithful to the scriptures. That's my responsibility. Grant that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in the Word of God, far more than I could possibly unfold for us today. May this message be what what kick-starts the mission this week, truly, as we think about evangelism and outreach. Lord God, now accompany the the proclamation of your word with the power of your Holy Spirit, applying it in, in unique and unsearchable ways, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if I may, I'd like to take just a few moments on the outset of this sermon in order to do some, some housekeeping that'll serve us well into the weeks ahead. And this is more on a, a personal note, just so you all know kind of what's up with, with me and my family. Uh, one week from today is Christmas Eve, can you believe it? And we will have, as usual, a, a Sunday morning worship gathering, 1030. We'll meet here in the sanctuary. As Andy mentioned, there's no Sunday school this week or Next week or the week after that even, but 1030 Worship Gathering will be here. And as it's Christmas Eve, we'll also plan to gather once more as we traditionally do, 4 o'clock here in the sanctuary. And uh, my family is planning to leave in between those two worship gatherings to head down to Melissa's parents in St. Louis. And so the elders will lead that worship gathering one week from tonight, uh, 4 p.m. Terry Kruger will be preaching and we look forward to that. And then as we look ahead into the new year, I have an announcement that some of you are aware of, but some of you aren't, and so I just want to level the, the playing field if I can. Uh, a number of months ago, I was, I was given an offer that I, that I can't refuse. Uh, a scholarship has been made available for me to travel alongside professors and students and members of Central Baptist Theological Seminary and Fourth Baptist Church in Plymouth. And the travel, the trip, is to the land of Israel. And by God's grace, I plan to leave uh, Friday, January 5th. I also have the privilege to travel alongside Guy Runkle, who's a student at uh, Central Seminary. And so I won't be alone. We'll be with the community there as well. Um, The trip is planned for 13 days altogether. So we plan to leave, Lord willing, January 5th, come back Wednesday, January 17th. And just because it's on people's minds, obviously when the tickets were were purchased, nobody had any idea that the president would would make the proclamation, the announcement that he made about a week and a half ago. Um, We have spoken with our trip leader who is on the ground in Israel right now, and he assures us that there's absolutely no reason to derail our plans for um, any purposes. Um, The fact is, Israel... um, in the Middle East, in general, I'm, I'm not sure that there's ever an opportune time to travel to the Middle East. I don't know that we're ever going to find the best window in the world to do that. And so, um, we will travel with caution. Traveling without caution would be unwise in the Middle East. But we look for God's wisdom and uh, His wise plans as we prepare. All right, this week and next, we have the privilege of studying a key passage in Luke's Gospel. It's on the topic of mission. Perhaps you've gotten that flavor these past couple of weeks. And when I say mission, I mean outreach, evangelism, saying a good word for Jesus into the lives of those who do not yet know him, but desperately need him. Many of you with us in this sanctuary this morning, you know Jesus. You have been born again by God's grace through faith in Christ. And you're here today because you love the gospel and you love the church of Jesus Christ. And what I want to ask you in this moment is, can you remember a time in your life when that was not true of you, before that was true for you? You still have a recollection of that. Do you remember the first time that you heard the gospel? Or maybe you don't know the first time you heard the gospel, but you remember the, the, the person or persons, the link a, link, a number of links in the chain that were used to introduce you to Jesus, a number of key people. Well, this morning we have the joy of studying Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 16, and they, they form the first of a, of a two-part message, this week and next, a two-part exploration of what it looks like to be on mission for Jesus. And so this morning is part one, next week is part two, and these next two weeks in Luke's gospel are a gift to our congregation. Um, perhaps if you were with us last week, the Lord rang your bell as he did mine with the passage that we studied and you've got your list of five, you're praying for people and you're wondering, what does the next step look like? Well, this is the next step. This Christmas season, the Christmas season, is made for mission. So don't leave the baby in the manger. Make him the centerpiece of your conversation. The Christmas season is made for mission, So don't leave the baby in the manger. Make him the centerpiece of your conversation. An organization by the name of the American Culture and Faith Institute recently released a study that would um, indicate that a number of folks who identify as American evangelical Christians are doing very little as it relates to what we might call personal evangelism. Um, this study in particular claimed that only 39% of born-again Christians in our country even believe that they should share the gospel with unbelievers. Now, at that point, I have questions about the research. Not that there are so many people in this nation that don't desire to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Christ. Rather, I'm wondering whether such people are born again in the first place. It's one thing to be a bumbling evangelist and to be... um, unsure about how to proceed it's another thing entirely to deny that you need to open your mouth to say a good word for Jesus so we may need sharpening we may need tools for sharing about Christ but as pastor and author Jeff Vanderstelt says you don't have to tell people to talk about someone that they love they know how if you have to tell people and train people to talk about someone they love they don't love him or perhaps they don't know him as well as they might. So over these next two weeks, all of us have a window for spiritual conversations that is open perhaps as wide as it ever gets in our culture. This holiday season is a gift to our church, and the question remains, if you know Jesus, what are you going to do with that gift? Christmas season is made for missions, so don't leave the baby in the manger. Make him the centerpiece of your conversation. Three points from our text this morning. Each of them are related to evangelistic outreach. Let's get to it. Point number one, evangelistic outreach is a y'all go for the church, not a y'all come to the culture. Evangelistic outreach is a y'all go for the church, not a y'all come to the culture. The first point here is related to what we might call a philosophy of ministry. It's not so much the what of evangelistic outreach as it is the, the how Jesus' method for reaching unbelieving people is a y'all go spoken to his church, not a y'all come spoken to the culture. In the Bible, evangelistic outreach is more missional than it is attractional. In the Bible, evangelistic outreach is more centrifugal than it is centripetal. In the Bible, evangelistic outreach is a y'all go for the church. It's not a y'all come to the culture. So look with me once more at Jesus' instructions to his followers. Chapter 10 Verses 1 to 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and to place that he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Now, obviously, we don't have time this morning to consider every last facet of these 12 verses. Let me give us an overarching principle that I see running through these verses, the the movement of these verses. That that movement is outward. Did you hear it as I read? How could you not? Verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town that he himself was about to go. Verse 2, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest. To what? To send out laborers into his harvest. Verse 3, go your way, sending us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. As we think about evangelism, we just want to get this straight on the front end. The Great Commission is not an invitation to lost people. It's a command for found people. Jesus says in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Luke himself gives a great commission of sorts. It's in the Gospel of Luke, part two, which is known as the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 1.8, we see this centrifugal Um, direction that jesus gives the church you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses and notice these concentric circles in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the end of the earth you hear the trajectory of that jerusalem judea samaria to the end of the earth that trajectory is the pattern of the book of acts that's the way the book of acts is is arranged the church doesn't stay put in jerusalem and say to the culture y'all come the church sets out from Jerusalem and says, let's go. And my question for us this morning is, is that what your life looks like? As it comes to the burden of evangelism, is that what your life looks like? Does your following of Jesus look anything like this? You say, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I want it to. I really want it to. And trusting that that's the case for you, I'd like to offer four practical gauges from these verses Um, And you can know whether or not you're on the y'all go plan or the y'all come plan, okay? Four practical considerations that all evangelists carry with them. Four R's, you ready? First conviction for evangelistic outreach. Evangelism involves first the rank and file. The rank and file. Verse 1, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others And sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town that he himself was about to go. Do you ever wonder who the 72 others are? I've always wondered that, ever since the first time I read this, years and years ago. Jesus, I know. The 12, I recognize. Who are these 72? Well, I had the opportunity to research that a little bit this week, and you know what I came up with? I have no idea. And judging from the commentaries that I read, nobody else knows either. And that's just the point. Oh, people guess. They do. I I read some scholars who said maybe Barnabas was in this group, Paul's traveling companion. Maybe. Maybe Matthias. I mean, he was the apostle to replace Judas. And I think you have some reason to think maybe Matthias was here based upon the words of Acts 1. Somebody else suggested Sosthenes. You know who Sosthenes is? He was Paul's friend who was with him when he wrote 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. These are guesses at best. Most of these people are not a footnote on a footnote in redemptive history. We simply have no clue who these 72 people were. And that's precisely the point. Christ followers who are pushing the ball down the field for the gospel understand that Jesus commissions normal people everyday people, the rank and file to be involved in evangelistic outreach. I love that verse 1 makes it very clear that the 12 apostles were not numbered among these 72. You see that? Luke's Luke's very intentional to say that. Luke says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them. This is not apostolic evangelism. This is non-apostolic evangelism. And if you were inclined to think, yeah, but... That's why we have pastors today, right? Well, pastors are the ones who do outreach for the church, right? Well, if I could change the preposition in that last sentence to with the church, yes. Pastors do outreach with the church, but not for the church. If anything is the case, Ephesians 4.12 says that pastors are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's a pastor's job. And to keep up by being evangelistically intense in their own sphere of influence. You know, it doesn't even occur to Christians who take the mission seriously um, like this to attempt to shift evangelistic responsibility away from themselves to religious professionals. Why should religious professionals get to have all the fun, right? So the first conviction for evangelistic outreach is that it involves the rank and file. It involves everybody. Second conviction, evangelistic outreach involves risk. Evangelistic outreach involves risk. Verse 3, go your way, and behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, instead of just raking us over the coals for being cowardly in our evangelistic witness, allow me to just seek to inspire you, if I can, for a moment. This is a quote I've shared before, um, but it bears repeating. 60 years ago, in 1947, author Howard Guinness wrote a little book called Sacrifice. And in it, he asks this, where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? Where are those who will lose their lives for Christ's sake, flinging them away for love of Him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in His service? Where are Christ's lovers? those who love him and the souls of men more than their own reputations or comfort or very life where are the men and women who say no to self who take up Christ's cross to bear it after him and are willing to be nailed to it in college or office or home or mission field and are willing if need be to bleed and suffer and die on it now he's not done yet he's just getting warmed up he says where are the adventurers where are the explorers the buccaneers for god Who count one human soul as a far greater value than the rise or fall of an empire. Where are the men and women who will pay the price of vision? Where are the men and women? Where are God's men and women in this day of God's power? Isn't that great? Yeah. Don't you want to be that way? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Do you know Jesus? He's sending you out today as a sheep in the midst of wolves. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Evangelism involves risk. Always has, always will. Third conviction. Evangelism involves resolve. Evangelism involves resolve. Verses 4 to 9. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, there's a lot packed into that subpoint, far more than I can unpack in this subpoint. But suffice it to say, These six verses, as you think about evangelistic outreach, I think they all to one degree or another involve resolve, being resolute. Resolve for the 72 for them meant to travel light. Resolve for the 72 meant Jesus was saying look for folks, be resolved to look for folks with spiritual and relational warmth. That's verse 6. And I'd camp out here for just a moment. You may have a list of five. Or like me, you have a list of 28, I think. And I think about people. If negative 10 is a stone-cold hardened atheist, zero is conversion, and positive 10 is Billy Graham, let's say, you probably have people anywhere from negative 10 to zero on your list. And my recommendation, I think Jesus' recommendation, is go like a heat-seeking missile after negative 2, negative 1. Okay, negative 0.5. In other words, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. Look for the person of peace on your list of five. The person with spiritual and relational warmth. The person that's not laughing you out of the conversation, but they don't know Jesus all the same. Focus on that person. Be resolved to focus on that person. Resolve to establish meaningful relationship with lost people in the context of their own lives. You see that several times here. Moving on to the home turf of these people. Not going house to house, but but camping out and getting to know a family or two. And then finally, resolve to offer a clear verbal witness about the nature of the kingdom of God to clarify precisely what's on the line. Evangelism, if anything, it involves resolve. Finally, evangelism involves rejection. Evangelism involves rejection. Look with me once more, verses 10 to 12. But when you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The fourth application here, the sub-point under point number one is that evangelism involves rejection, always. Always. If you're doing it right, it, it does. Two weeks ago, we had an entire sermon on what it looks like to endure and to bear up under rejection and to develop endurance. So we won't linger here. What do you do when you're rejected? Well, this is what Jesus teaches us to do. Thicken your skin, soften your heart, press into the mission. Thicken your skin, soften your heart, press into the mission. It's just that simple. So how do you approach outreach? Outreach. Whose job is evangelism? Well, you know you have a y'all go approach when your convictions for outreach involve the rank and file, risk, resolve, and rejection. You see why the y'all come approach is so tempting? It's been that way for the American Evangelical Church over the last generation or so. Uh, You lean on religious professionals to do the work of evangelism, not the rank and file. You live lives of safety rather than risk. You pursue the mission at your convenience and you bail when it gets difficult, not to press in with resolve at a number of different levels. And you're, you're obsessed with other people's acceptance of you rather than prepared for their rejection of you. But, Jesus gives us a different approach. Evangelistic outreach is a y'all go for the church, not a y'all come to the culture. Second point today. Evangelistic outreach is a warning to unbelievers that Jesus cannot be safely ignored or rejected for long. Evangelistic outreach is a warning to unbelievers that Jesus cannot be safely ignored or rejected for long. Look with me if you would at verses 13 to 15. Luke chapter 10 verses 13 to 15. Woe to you, Chorazin! Evangelistic outreach is a warning to unbelievers that Jesus cannot be safely ignored or rejected for long. It's ironic in a sense, isn't it, that sharing the good news of Jesus would also immediately imply and involve judgment from Jesus. On the other hand, it makes perfect sense R.C. Sproul, who stepped into the presence of our Lord this past week, was a preacher of the highest order in this nation. Sproul understood how to communicate the biblical teaching concerning the justice and wrath of Almighty God and was reading this past week of a a contemporary of his that was thinking over Sproul's ministry and he said this, Man-centered humans are amazed that God should withhold life and joy from His creatures. But the God-centered Bible is amazed that God should withhold judgment from sinners. I'll say that again. Man-centered humans are amazed that God should withhold life and joy from His creatures. But the God-centered Bible is amazed that God should withhold judgment from sinners. That's exactly right. Verses 13 to 15 here, Jesus calls out three Galilean cities in succession. Chorazin and Bethsaida, they are situated on the Sea of Galilee. Galilee which Jesus had been ministering among. And then in verse 13, that's in verse 13, then Capernaum in verse 15. Furthermore, in this broader section, Jesus compares the ancient pagan cities of Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. He compares them favorably with them. What Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum all have in common is that Jesus spent ridiculous amounts of time there. Particularly in Capernaum. The first of Jesus' signs in Luke's gospel was there in Capernaum. The very first demon exorcism was there. The healing of the centurion's servant in chapter 7, Capernaum. This town in particular had a front row seat to witness the mighty works of Christ and yet Jesus has nothing but assurance of future judgment for them along with the woes that he pronounces upon Chorazin and Bethsaida. These towns had more than their exposure to the kingdom of God and the power of Jesus and yet they remained in their unbelief and the way he threatens them and I'll tell you this it doesn't bode well for a nation like ours a land that has enjoyed the presence and the benefits of the message of the gospel and the people of God for 400 years almost it's almost 400 years since the pilgrims landed in Plymouth Rock can't you hear Jesus? Woe to you, Minneapolis. Woe to you, West Metro. Woe to you, West Tonka. And I suppose this is anecdotal, but when I think about all of the folks that I know in my web of relationships, I would guess three-quarters of them are yet unchurched. Most of whom grew up in church of some kind or another. Most all of them, of course, have heard of Jesus. Jesus. In fact, I think the only legit unreached people group in the West Tonka area would be children of unbelieving parents. And I think there are people who've never heard the name of Jesus. They're preschoolers with parents that are unbelievers in our community. But most everyone has heard of Jesus and they have some sort of working definition of the gospel and yet it hasn't resulted in saving faith. So while evangelistic outreach is a gift to our broader community, it's also a, it's a warning to them. It's a warning that Jesus cannot be safely ignored forever i remember that the first time i heard the gospel i was 18 standing on a beach in daytona and then it was several months later i heard the gospel again and it was just god closing in on me i knew i couldn't avoid jesus forever it's a warning that jesus cannot be safely ignored or rejected for long jesus will not be brushed off or discounted or evaded or slighted forever not indefinitely 19th century preacher Charles Simeon observed, Oh, that our head were a fountain of tears to run down for them day and night, and that we might labor, all of us, whilst there is yet time, to pluck them out as brands from the burning. I just ask you, are you headed into holidays with that sort of mindset, with unbelieving friends and family and co workers and neighbors? The Christmas season is made for mission, so don't leave the baby in the manger. Make them the centerpiece of your conversation. First, evangelistic outreach, it's a y'all go for the church. It's not a y'all, they're not coming. It's not a y'all come to the culture. It's a y'all go for the church. And secondly, evangelistic outreach is a warning to unbelievers that Jesus cannot be safely ignored or rejected for long. Final point today evangelistic outreach is a reminder to believers that our union with Christ is inexhaustibly profound. Evangelistic outreach is a reminder to believers that our union with Christ is inexhaustibly profound. One final verse, in some ways we've saved the best for last, then we're done. Maybe done a little early today. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus is speaking to his 72 rank-and-file believers, and he says, "The one who hears you hears." me and the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me remember the words of Jesus in the great commission i already read it for us matthew 28 verse 20 he says behold i am with you even to the end of the age in luke 10:16 there is a further confirmation of that truth jesus says the one hears you hears me the one who rejects you rejects me the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me as a christian you're not just justified by jesus you are joined to jesus you say how well, It's like a vine and branches it's like a husband and a wife It's like a temple cornerstone and living stones. It's like a head and a body. The New Testament images that describe our union with Jesus are nothing short of staggering. But that just, I think, gets our sanctified imagination primed a little bit. I think these New Testament images are not exhaustive. I think they are encouraging us Begging for further creativity. That's why my daughter and I put together that little booklet, Five Rooms on the Doctrine of Union with Christ. And one of the statements that's in the back appendix of that booklet is a beautiful quote by a a senior saint who's gone to be with the Lord named Ray Ortland. And he says this, We're in Christ the way a baby's in a womb, but better. We're in Him the way a moth is in a chrysalis, but better. We're in him the way a deep sea diver's in his diving suit, but better. We're in Christ the way birds are in the air, fish are in the sea, but better. And then he asks, can you think of other comparisons of how a Christian's in Christ? And then he says, none of them can measure up to all the wonderful things it means for a believer to be in him. I, I just think that's gorgeous. That has captivated my imagination since I first heard it. It's from Ortland's beautifully titled book, Circle of Strength." Become what you were meant to be, a Christ-enclosed Christian. Well, that's why Jesus says what he says here. If you're a believer, you are Christ-enclosed. Always. Therefore, what Jesus says here at the end of our text in verse 16 is the furthest thing from an overstatement. The one who hears you hears me. I am with you always. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Do you realize the person who is with you all the time if you're a Christian? Do you realize the presence that is with you all the time if you are a Christian? Do you realize the power that is yours all the time if you are a Christian? Friends, the doctrine of union with Christ alone is sufficient motivation to get out there and make a racket for Jesus. My, my wife and I at the last minute were invited to a, a 40th birthday party in the area last night, and I didn't even know it was going to happen until maybe two days ago. And I remember thinking, I was asking her, who's on the list? Who's been invited to come? And she rattled off a few names, and, and I was thinking, you know, there's another name on that list that they didn't bargain for. Jesus is coming tonight. And it's a privilege. You go two by two, sometimes with your spouse, into a party to make a big deal for Jesus. Notice the flavor here, too, in verse 16. Verse 16 prevents us, two different areas, I think, with regard to evangelism. It prevents us from being kept away from evangelism, and then I think it also prevents us from being swept away in evangelism. Here's what I mean. Let's say you have the opportunity to share the gospel, I mean really dump the full load on somebody between Christmas and New Year's, these next two weeks, and let's say they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as a result. Can you imagine it? Let's say that happens. Who gets the credit for that? I mean, who are they really receiving? Not you, Jesus. The one who hears you hears me speaking through you. Or think about the other side. Let's say you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone this Christmas and they laugh you out of the conversation. Hmm. What then? Who are they really rejecting? You? Don't flatter yourself. (laughs) Jesus. Jesus. We don't matter that much in the final analysis. The one who rejects you is rejecting me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So can we just... Settle down, not be so anxious about evangelism over the next couple of weeks. Simply enjoy the presence of our Savior in union with Him. Evangelistic outreach is a reminder to believers that our union with Christ is inexhaustibly profound. You are a Christ-enclosed person if you know Jesus. Well, let's review. This Christmas season is made for mission, so don't leave the baby in the manger. Make him the centerpiece of your conversation. Evangelistic outreach is at least three things in this text. First, it's a y'all go for the church, not a y'all come to the culture. Evangelistic outreach is a warning to unbelievers that Jesus cannot be safely ignored or rejected forever. And evangelistic outreach is a reminder to us that our union with Christ is inexhaustibly profound. So friends, we have a golden opportunity over the next two weeks. Golden opportunity. All of us, in one way or another, will be rubbing shoulders with folks who are far from Christ And remember, even if they appear to be far from the Savior, if they are near you, they are closer to Jesus than they think. That's an encouraging thought. So how might the Lord be pleased to use you over the coming days? Some of us have unbelieving family members, broader, uh, extended family, and you're going to be moving right into those uh, parties and those get-togethers over the next two weeks others of us have christmas parties through work or local community gatherings and it's it's on you're going to have an opportunity to be with people who don't know jesus and maybe you don't anticipate any unique social opportunities over the next 2 weeks that's fine just look around they're everywhere at the grocery store they're at super america they're at the supermarket they're at the gym friends the opportunities abound Let's not make this any more complicated than it has to be. And whatever else we do, please do not be stingy with the gospel this Christmas. Amen? If you'd like some more practical help, I would just draw your attention to the community group study guide. You can find it on the inside of your sermon notes. The study guide is from David Mathis, a friend of mine and one of the pastors of Cities Church here in Minneapolis. Uh, David is in turn leading on a book by Randy Newman called Bringing the Gospel Home. It's an excellent guide. Use it in your own personal devotions. Use it in your family worship time. Use it in your community group over the next two weeks. It will help you to make much of Jesus this holiday season. Now, Next week, we're going to check in to see how things are going with us and with the 72 because we're right in the middle of the sermon text. They're going to return from their missionary journey, and they're going to report to Jesus how it went, and then Jesus is going to evaluate their mission. So one week from today on Christmas Eve morning, we'll get to see not only their report, but Jesus' evaluation of it. We've got a marvelous text for Christmas Eve morning. I can't wait. Right now, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the adventure of evangelism. Thank you for the rush of being a part of the greatest mission that was ever hatched in the history of this planet. Lord Jesus, you are our coming king. And we so want to be found with our hands to the plow when you return. And so as we focus on Advent, Lord, may we look backward to the incarnation, to the baby in the manger, and may we marvel and worship at the feet of our king. And yet may we look forward, forward to our coming king. What do we want to be found doing when you return? How about sharing the gospel with a lost person on our list of five? That would be glorious. So just encourage us this season. Give us new categories of fresh thinking, of hope. Create new conditions in our lives in relationships with lost people. Particularly, I pray that you would kick wide open doors that seem they've slammed shut. Whether it's family members, whether it's other friends that we've just sort of moved into a rut with. Lord, help us to skip out of that rut and and to move into a new groove with them. Give us the opportunity, Lord, to open our mouths for Jesus. In your name we pray it. Amen.